Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we know that no one comes to you except you draw him. And we thank you that you've drawn us into that tent whose cords keep spreading wider and wider for all the people that you're calling unto Christ. And we thank you that within that tent we are your children and all your sons are taught by God. Teach us this morning. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. The advice of the preacher is, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. He says in another place, go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking from your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. We're going to talk just a bit about the flow of Second Chronicles 5 through 7. But first, turn, if you would, to Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. A house of sacrifice, it's a particular word for sacrifice. It can mean inclusively all the sacrifices, but usually in the Old Testament when you see this word, it is used of peace offerings. So God is saying, okay, Solomon, you've been praying, you've been asking me to hear, you've been asking my eye to see, and I've heard, and I've seen, and I've chosen this house to put my name there. It's my house, and it's a house of sacrifice. The dedication of the temple is called in the seventh month on the 15th day of the month. If you start in chapter five and you work your way through chapter seven, 
you find a large chiasm. First in chapter 5, the assembler, the king, in the book of Ecclesiastes, that is translated as the preacher, but it is the word that means to assemble a congregation. That's partly how we know Ecclesiastes fits the dedication of the temple. So Ecclesiastes, although it's mystifying to us, it has one huge message. Not for foolish people, but for wise people who've received a gift from God. And the message is, okay, you can't know everything. It's a mist. Translated vanity, it means a fog. It's a mist. But one thing you can do, you can enjoy life. The feast in the seventh month on the 15th day to the 22nd day is the Feast of Tabernacles. It is the largest feast Israel has. It has all kinds of sacrifices. And now at the dedication of the temple, it has, first of all, on the way, so many sacrifices that one cannot number them. And at the end, Solomon and the people offer up 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. That's a lot of sacrifices. And those sacrifices come in two varieties. The one, probably the oxen, are an ascension. So it's completely burned up. It goes up and it makes its way to God. The second are peace offerings, peace sacrifices. I don't know what happened. There it is. Peace offerings that... Uh, the people are going to eat with God. So the feast becomes a supersized feast. So in chapter 5, the king Solomon assembles the people to the feast. And they get the ark and they march towards Mount Moriah. And there's all kinds of sacrifices that are going on. Chapter 5 tells us they cannot be numbered. So many. And as they're on the way, there is music, praise. And then they enter into the Holy of Holies, the priests, and they set the Ark of the Covenant under the wings of the cherubim. And when they come out, the house is filled with glory. And in chapter 6, verse 1 Solomon says the Lord said he would dwell in a thick cloud. So we know that this is the glory cloud that has overshadowed this new temple and has entered inside of it so much so that no one else can be there. The rest of chapter 6 is a prayer. It comes in basically three sections. We've talked about some of it. We're not going to talk about all of it. And at the end of chapter 6, quoting from Psalm 132, the chronicler says, Okay, now, God, rise up with your ark of might. And that's exactly what happens. God, as it were, takes his throne. And in chapter 7, verse 1, fire comes out from heaven and burns all kinds of sacrifices which the chapter is going to describe. And once again, the glory cloud of God fills the place so that people cannot minister. 
Then comes singing and praise. Indeed, he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting, taken from 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And then what do they do? They offer more sacrifices. And then at the end of this section, the feast comes to an end. All I'm trying to say is we're moving towards the center and then we're moving out from the center. And what this includes is God coming to name the temple. This is my house. By the word, the word temple is just house. When you see in your Bibles where David built himself a temple, it's just the word house. David has a house. God has a house. They're about this far apart. There's just, an, just a little walkway between them. Because David, I should say Solomon, Solomon is on the right hand of God. So when this is all said and done, what God says is, okay, Solomon, I've heard your prayer, and I've put my name on this house, and it's going to be a place of feasting. A place of feasting. Well, that's exactly what the church is. It's a place of feasting. So when we come together, we confess our sins, we hear from the Lord, and then the Lord invites us to sit down at His table and eat. And we're eating as kings and queens at the table of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it's a feast. You can understand why then the early church liked to have a love feast when they got together. Because it's a feast. It seems much less than a feast when you get a pinch of bread and a, uh, a thimble of wine. So probably we should include the bread to be a nice big uh, piece of bread and the thimble of wine to turn into what? Two, three ounces? Some people have said to me, oh, that wine's so bad I can't stand it. Other people have said to me, that wine's so good I'd like to grab two cups. <laughs> that's feasting, and that's what this is about. Now, in the process of this, uh, this grand dedication, and the word dedication and the word consecration are the same words that mean the same thing. It means to set apart. In other words, when God says, I'm going to put my name there, it's dedicated it's sanctified, it's consecrated. And so God's name is put there. But here's this cloud that comes down and overshadows the temple and fills the temple. And there's fire that descends from heaven and eats up the sacrifices. Now remember, chapter 7, verse 1, where fire comes down. The fire is not judgment. The judgment in a sacrifice is when you slit the throat and the blood drains out and God has said, the soul that sins dies. And when that animal dies, the judgment is over. Then the animal is sectioned up, depending on what kind of sacrifice it is. And some of every sacrifice, all of the ascension offering, is put on the bronze altar and it goes up in smoke, it is transformed, it is a transfiguration. Jesus called his disciples to follow him. After Peter, 
tried to coerce him into, this isn't going to happen to you, Lord. You're, you're not going to die. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on man's interests, not God's interests. Then he spoke to them and all the multitude and said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. And there's that disciple sec section in each of the synoptic gospels. In Mark chapter 9, then you move from there to the Mount of Transfiguration. And at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up into the mountain. And they saw Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. And Peter didn't know what to do, so he said, Lord, let's build a tent for each of you. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And the Bible says he didn't know what he was saying. And then what happens? This cloud comes down and envelops Jesus, Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, and John. And God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So in this cloud, which is the glory cloud of God, are standing Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, and then the cloud goes away, and there they are on the mountain by themselves, and Elijah and Moses are gone. What I'm suggesting to you is that Second Chronicles is bringing that imagery to us. So at the temple, God puts his name there, and his cloud fills the place. But this is just a manifestation of God's glory, and God has much more work to do. And so he calls the temple his house, my house. I'll put my name there. And as we read, we discover he calls the people my people. And so you have my house, my people. Okay, now I have a house and my wife, my people live with me. That's the implication. You come over to God's house and if you're God's people, that's where you belong. And what it turns out then is my people and my house are linked like this so that my house is a picture of my people. And when you come to the New Testament, then that becomes explicitly clear as Jesus tabernacles among us and then said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, Jesus died. He rose. He ascended into heaven. He sent forth the Spirit. And the Spirit is building God's house. At the same time he's building it, He's living within it. And so we have this picture. Now, uh, turn, if you would, to, to uh, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, excuse me. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. And we did not follow cleverly devised tales 
when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance uh, as this was made to Him. The majestic glory said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, when you look in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know that the coming that Peter is talking about is not what we call the second coming because it comes in the context that some of you will still be alive. It's not talking about the return of Christ in the Spirit on the day of Pentecost because the implication is some of you will be dead. It is talking about A.D. 70, that time when Jesus told Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of glory. Daniel chapter 7. And when you read Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and following, 13 and 14 talk about the Son of Man, and the rest of the chapter is talking about the people of God who reign with the Son of Man. So what I'm suggesting to you is, okay, in Chronicles, we get a glimpse of this glory cloud that comes into the temple and the fire that comes down from heaven and feasts on the peace offerings. And the people eat with God and enjoy being enveloped in this cloud picked up in the New Testament, Jesus is brought into the cloud, Peter, James, and John are brought into the cloud, and in A.D. 70, Jesus is pictured as coming, not down to earth, but up to heaven, and in A.D. 70, his faithful saints, martyred under the altar, went with him. Not a physical resurrection, but went with him, and they are now in the cloud. Now, I want you to then turn back to, if you're not there, to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And 2 Chronicles chapter 7, then verses 1 through 3 are about the fire, the cloud, and the priests could not enter into the house, verse 2, of Yahweh, because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire, come down and the glory of Yahweh upon the house bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave praise to Yahweh, saying, Truly, he is good. Truly, his loving kindness endures forever. Now, this picks up something that happens in chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. 
excuse me, chapter 6, 12, and 13. And in chapter 6, Solomon is going to pray. And he gets up on a, the New American Standard says, platform. The word is the same word as is used for the basins of water. It, it just, it doesn't specifically name a platform, but it gives the measurements. The measurements of this platform that he climbs up onto, then kneels down in front of all the people, and then spreads his hands towards God. This platform is five cubits by five cubits and three cubits tall. Now, if you know your biblical measurements, you know that that was the size of the bronze altar that was at the tabernacle. The altar that Solomon built for the temple is 10 cubits by 10 cubits and five cubits tall. So this is not as tall as the bronze altar, but there's a clear picture. Solomon is placing himself on the altar. And when the people get down on the ground and they put their heads to the pavement, the word for pavement is that word burning coal from Isaiah chapter 6 that the angel brings and touches Isaiah's lips. It's a word for a hot stone in 1 Kings when Elijah is, has food cooked for him on a hot stone. In other words, this whole area has been dedicated not just the bronze altar, but the whole courtyard that's in front of the temple up to the bronze altar has been dedicated because there are so many sacrifices, the altar will not contain them. They need a much bigger space. And when the people kneel down on that pavement, as Solomon knelt on that altar, what they are saying is something you and I know about. We hear about it when we read Romans. Present yourselves as living sacrifices. So when Solomon kneels down, spreads out his hands to pray, he is offering a sacrifice which Hebrews calls the fruit of lips that confess God's name. And when you read that long prayer, as we read some of it last week, it is a confession that God is in charge. And... Uh, He's asking God, okay, make this house such that if people are there, you'll hear their prayer. If they've gone off on a journey, they'll hear your prayer. If they're off at battle and they turn towards this house, they'll hear your prayer. And if you cast them out because you're angry with them into a land of captivity and they turn to this house, then see with your eyes and hear with your ears and forgive. That's what Solomon is asking for, and that's what God says he has done. So look back at chapter 7. When God comes to Solomon, and he says he's chosen this place for myself as a house of prayer, then he says, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locust to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. 
Now, you can see, this is just a sampling of the prayer we looked at last week in chapter 7. All kinds of things can happen, but I want you to notice one thing. This is, this is crucial. I've said it, but it's crucial, crucial, super crucial. So I am so sick and tired of hearing this line. Follow the science. Now, first of all, science is up to interpretation. It's just not factual just like that. But follow the science. Okay, so let's say we know the science of something. Who's behind the science? Let's say, oh yeah, yeah, the way we're living is causing a climate change that are bringing hurricanes more often to the United States. Oh yeah, yeah, climate change is bringing rising temperatures and forest fires to the West Coast. What if we know that that's true? I'm saying, what if we know it's true? Who did it? Well, God works through means. Everything God does is not what we call an A class one miracle. No, he works through means. And so if the country lives in a manner that causes temperatures to rise, well, God's the one doing it. He's seeking an occasion to do something. That's what the scriptures say. That's what God is saying here. If I shut up the heavens, no, today we would say, well, you know, it hasn't been raining because of, and then we give the science. And unfortunately, it seems to me, we Christians have fallen prey to the same kind of thinking. Instead of saying, okay, yeah, science, science has a place, and science is true, and science can be factual. It is open to interpretation because with the same data, everybody doesn't come up with the same conclusion. But... but who's behind it? You see, what, what God is telling Solomon is, I am sovereign. This house is very special. My name's there. And it's a place of feasting. Now remember, this house is built on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. When David had to build an altar, and offer sacrifices to stay off the angel of the Lord because of his sin. Remember, Ruth met Boaz on a threshing site. Think then broadly about, well, so many chapters in the Bible. A person has, let's just say a man, a man has a cloak and has four corners. Your translation will say corners. The real translation is wings. And what a man does is he spreads his wing. In other words, he and his wife fit into one garment. Now, we have this glory cloud. We have Peter, James, and John in this cloud. And what's happened? It's been spread over them. That's my people. Then God says, okay, now what if I close up the heavens so it doesn't rain or I command the locusts to devour the land? What then? Then verse 14. Now, 
we've gone through a long era. Um, I'm going to say starting in the 70s. It may have been really before that. I don't know. But starting in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the idea that we're going to reclaim America as Christians, we're going to turn this into a Christian nation. And this passage was stated. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face uh, and, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, and will heal their land. Remember the seventh petition of Solomon's long prayer had sin, wickedness, and iniquity. If they confess sin, wickedness, and iniquity, and if they turn to the land you gave them, and they look at the city that you've chosen, and they turn to the house which I've built, then hear and forgive. Well, this is exactly what God is saying. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves. Now, the word humble, what would you think that means? Well, it doesn't quite mean probably what you think it means. It has that general sense, but throughout the Bible, given the particular context, but especially in First and Second Chronicles, this word is translated as subdue. David subdued the Amorites and the Philistines. David subdued them and he laid them down and he cut some of them with saws and axes. He subdued them. That's the word humble. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, what does that then mean? Well, we all know what it means. You see, because all of us, I, I, I don't suppose there's a one of us who just loves somebody telling us what to do. We would all like to be the one telling someone else what to do. But when you're humble, you come under subjection to somebody. Somebody has more power, more authority than you do, and a humble person accepts that as fact. You notice, that is not acceptable to our culture whatsoever. But God is saying, okay, if I've sent rain or locust, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their sin, then I will hear and forgive and heal their land. Well, now, of course, this is written, this, this is God talking to Solomon at nighttime. And Solomon is an Israelite who is under the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and most especially the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic covenant has Sanctions. If you do this, this, and this, here's what I will do. Now, the, if they turn from God uh, to other gods, then God says, what I'm going to do is vomit you out of my land. I'm going to cast you out of my land. But short of that, well, even when they're cast out, God brings earthly events, famine, locusts, 
forest fires, hurricanes, tornadoes, to do what? To get people's attention. Now, when it comes to his people, those attention getters are what we call tribulations, trials. Sometimes they come not because of sin, but we've gotten so used to thinking they never come because of sin. But God is saying, okay, I've stopped the rain, so you have to look for me. I've uh, caused the locusts to come to devour the land, so you have no food. You have to look to me. Then, verse 14, that great verse, and my people who are called by my name put themselves under my subjection and pray and seek my face. Remember, we started way back in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, and what was the problem with Saul? Saul was unfaithful. He, was, he committed a treacherous act, a treasonous act. And instead of inquiring, seeking the Lord, he sought a medium. So here he's saying, okay, when I bring no rain, I bring terrible circumstances, if my people who are called by my name humble, get under my subjection and seek my face, look to me. Look to me, he's saying, and turn from their sin, then I will hear, hear their land. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house with my name, that my name be there, may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. My eyes and my heart. Notice now, before it was my eyes, ears and eyes, but now he switches to heart. God says, I'm going to see. Well, he's still going to hear. But now he's saying, I, I, I've put my name right here. This is my house. This is where my heart is. So I don't care where you are. If you're 2,000 miles from my house, and he said, I want to go to the house of Yahweh, just turn that direction and pray. I don't care if you're in captivity. If you realize I've been talking to you, just turn. It's my house. It's where my name is. And pray, and I will hear. That's where my heart is. Why? Because it's my house, and you're my people, and my people, even if you're traveling, even if you're in captivity, where do you belong? You belong at my house. In the New Testament, we find that also, don't we? Living stones are being put together for a spiritual house. The word house, here in, here in first, Second Chronicles 7, it's just the word house. It's not the word temple. It's God's house. A spiritual house to offer up sacrifices acceptable to God through 
Jesus Christ. So God has answered the prayer. It's been this long, elaborate week. And now, when Solomon has dismissed everyone, on the 23rd of the seventh month, 15 through 21 are feast days. 13 bulls, 12 bulls, all the way down to seven bulls. And then the eighth day, the 22nd of the seventh month, is a solemn assembly. And then on the 23rd day, everybody goes home. There's some people who think this feast lasted 14 days, and the way it's written in 1 Kings might make you think that, and you might think it here because seven days were for dedicating the altar and seven days were for the feast, but I think they run simultaneously. Why would you dedicate, why the altar? Why a special name for the altar? We understand the feast. This is Israel's obligation every seventh month of the year. But why the altar? Well, when you think of the tabernacle or the temple, you come to the front door, and the first thing you come to is what? The altar. So the altar is called the doorway. If you're going to meet with God in the Old Testament, you're going to meet with God through an ascension. You're going to offer a sacrifice, and that bull or that sheep, in our case, as just regular people, it would be a sheep and it ascends up into heaven as transformed smoke. That's you going up to meet with the Lord. And with that offering, you're going to bring your tribute because you're going to meet the king. You don't come empty-handed. And it's a memorial portion of a grain offering, a tribute offering, that goes on top of the ascension offering. And once you offer all of that and God sucks you in, then you're going to offer a peace offering, which this section is about. My house is going to be a house of sacrifice. What? So you can come and eat with me. That's what we do every Sunday. We come and eat with the God of the universe. We eat and drink. And that's why Ecclesiastes is so essential. This is what God has given you to eat and to drink and to enjoy life. So Solomon sent them all home on the 23rd day and their hearts were happy. Why? Because of what God had done for David and what God had done for uh, Solomon and what God had done for Israel. That's how Ecclesiastes fits into this. Now look down. Verses 17 and following then are a warning given to Solomon. So in verses, in verses 12 through 16, we have the acceptance of the answer to the prayer that this is going to be God's house of sacrifice and people can turn and pray just as Solomon was asking. Then he goes on to verse 17 and he says, As for you, now he's speaking specifically to Solomon. If you walk before me, as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you, and will uh, keep my statutes and my ordinances, which is a way of talking about all the prescriptions of the law, and the ordinances are the judgments of the law when the prescriptions are violated. So he's king. He's going to be the judge of the land. 
then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land, which I have, which I have given to you, and this house, which I have consecrated, set apart for myself, for which I have consecrated for my name, and I will cast, uh, I ca will cast out my, uh, cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all of the peoples. So here, Solomon is told specifically, Solomon, you're the king. You represent all the people. If you walk in my law and do your work as a ruler, I'm going to establish your throne forever. Your son will sit on it and his son will sit on it. But if you turn away, if you forsake me, if you do the Saul thing, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you out of the land I've given to you, and I'm going to take my house, and I'm going to cast it out of my sight. And among all the nations, it will become a proverb and a byword. How did this happen? Well, here's how this happened. Yahweh's house has been destroyed because Yahweh's people turned to other gods and served other gods. Now remember, First and Chronicles are written to a people who are living in exile. We don't know exactly when it's written, but the people went into exile because the people under their king turned away from God and he did just exactly what he said. He would cast the temple away, it was torn to nothing, and he would cast them out of the land. And so he's writing to people, some may have returned to Jerusalem, the others are still in exile, and he's telling the history of what went on so that they might learn and might repent and might seek Yahweh's face and turn from their sin. Now, notice, it's my house, my name, my people. So, we end up with, you know, theological questions. We don't have time to answer them, but I'm going to pose them. That is, how were people saved in the Old Testament? Not by sacrifices of animals, surely. No, we're told how Abraham was saved, just the way we are. His faith was reckoned to him as righteousness, justified by faith. And yet my people, 
went and worshipped other gods and are cast out of my land. If you seek my face and turn and repent, then I will forgive and heal. Well, so, when we come down to the New Testament, we get these same kinds of warnings. Particularly in the book of Hebrews and in 2 Peter. And, and the warnings are something like, okay, just like the call to worship that we read often out of Hebrews chapter 10. The call to worship says, not forsaking the assembling together as is the habit of some. Not forsaking the assembling together as is the habit of some. But what? Remaining true as you see the day drawing near. It's written to Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, and what's happening? Well, some of them are dropping out of the church. And God is saying, okay, if you, if you disassociate, then this is what's going to happen. Now, theologically, we know that when Christ has paid for your sins, that cannot be reversed. Nevertheless, a warning is there in Hebrews and many other books, just as Solomon has given warning. And isn't it interesting in 2 Chronicles that Solomon's sin is never exposed. He looks like the good guy. Well, we can talk about that another time, but it's not found in 2 Chronicles. And yet Solomon committed great sin, and the nation was torn apart because of Solomon's sin, because what did he do? He sought other gods. He worshiped other gods. He worshipped gods where people put their kids into the fire as sacrifice to God. He worshipped those gods. In the New Testament, we're reminded, okay, we who trust Christ, we sing the song, He'll hold us fast. And there have been tons of people in the church who say, okay, I trust Christ and He will hold me fast. And next thing you know, they're gone. Now, we don't know what will happen to them in the end. If they're still alive, they may return. I don't know. But the warning is there. Not so we can just lay claim to he will hold me fast, as we should, but so that as all the scriptures say, okay, God's sovereign, we're responsible. So when we hear a warning, if you sneak away, if you forsake the assembling of yourselves together, that doesn't mean you just don't show up to church for a month or two. It means you quit coming to church because you don't want to be associated with God's people anymore or with God. The warning is there for what reason? So that we will give every extra effort to hold fast to Christ as he holds fast to us. Solomon didn't do that. Well, at least from what's recorded in Scripture. This is a great section. We could spend forever on it. Uh, next week we'll, next week, I had forgotten, next week will be Reformation Sunday. So we'll do something Reformation. Let's stand together.
Father, I pray that we as Christians would take note of our times and be reminded that you are sovereign, not just in salvation, in calling those to faith whom you have chosen, but you are sovereign in every little thing that happens so that when natural disasters come, they come via your hand. When the twin towers fall down, they fall down because you had them fall down. Help us then to be sensitive, to see if you're telling your church, hey, look to me, look to me. Science is fine, but look to me. If you want things to change, be in my house and pray and humble yourself and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways. This we pray that we would be just such a people of yours, your people, looking to you completely. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.